What a, what a great thing to witness, right? What a great thing to see. Praise God for that. Uh, at this time, the uh, children uh, who are preschool up through second grade are dismissed for Children's Church. And for those who are remaining behind, um, I, I grabbed a blast zone so that I would know what to say, right? In the blast zone, they've got some keywords on the back, and they, they color those in, or they count how many times I say those words or whatnot. And so I endeavor to say those words, and so i got to know what to say. So I look to the children's bulletin <laughs> to know what to say. I'm not sure if that's a bad thing or a, or a good thing, but it is the case. All right. So if you would open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Ephesians uh, chapter 5, and we're going to read a very familiar passage, starting in verse 25, and we're going to go all the way through verse 30. Ephesians five twenty-five. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated His own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, rejoice that we uh, just got to witness the baptism of a sister in Christ. We are reminded of our own baptism, reminded of the work that you have done in our lives that Going down into that water is a picture of us having died with Christ. That being under that water is a picture of us being buried with Him. And being raised up out of that water is a picture of being raised with Christ to newness of life. That because of Jesus, we who are in Christ have new life, have forgiveness of our sins, they've, they've been cleansed, have righteousness before God because of Jesus. That we, uh, what we picture in this outward expression of baptism points to a glorious inward reality. And we thank you and we praise you for that inward reality and for the outward reminder. And Father, as we turn to uh, your word this morning and we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we ask that you would minister to us. That you would work in our hearts to set aside those things that distract what came before or what we're... uh, thinking might come after, or things that are just on our minds. Those things may be important, and we may may need to address them when the time comes, but for now, I pray that you would help us to focus on your word and that you would minister to us even now by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. It's a uh, very common thing in our day and age uh, to dismiss the role and really the importance of of the local church. And I, a recent poll that I looked at, I, I made the mistake of going online to look at poll numbers, and that, that can just lead you down a rabbit hole or it can make you depressed. So I stopped pretty quick. I, I didn't go too long, but one study that I looked at showed that in 2018, 
among those who are between 21 and 29, or age 21 through 29 years old, 36% of Protestants went to church weekly, and 25% of Catholics went to church weekly. So of people in their 20s who claim to be Protestant or who claim to be Catholic, just about a third, slightly more than a third of Protestants in that group go to church every week, and just about a quarter of those who claim to be Catholics in that age group go to church every week. And so that's kind of a stark reality when you think about, you know, why would you claim to be a Protestant if you don't actually go to church? Or what's the connection? There's, there seems to be a, an idea in our day and age or a, a feeling about the church that uh, kind of calls some things into question about uh, people's value of the church. Often when I'm starting a conversation with someone and I'm seeking to understand if this person's a Christian or I want to share the gospel with them or whatever, often I will ask them, do you have a church background? That's a pretty simple question and they can, they can tell me no or they can tell me yes or whatever. It's an open, you know, non-threatening question. I'm asking about their history. And usually people say, yeah, I have a church background, but I don't go to church anymore. And very often you will hear them say, but I still believe in God. And maybe they'll even say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm suspicious of, of organized religion, right? I'm suspicious of the church, or maybe they don't use the, the word suspicious, but they don't really like organized religion. You know, me and Jesus, that's really all I need. And so that seems to be part of the culture of our day, and uh, you see it more and more often. And so I would encourage you just in your own conversations with people, just to ask them about their own background and kind of get a conversation started that way. It leads pretty easily into discussion of spiritual things. But there's this suspicion of organized religion. There's this suspicion of the church. And frankly, on one hand, I, you know, I kind of see where they're coming from. Because, you know, when you get, get people gathered together, well, that's when you have relational difficulties. And it's kind of like a family where you have to work through things, right? But, you know, you don't throw away the family, so you don't have family conflict, right? You work through those things. And so on, on one hand, I can see when you gather a group of people together and, and uh, we do things together and we make decisions together, yeah, you, can, you, have, you have things that you have to work through as a family, as a church. And oftentimes the complaint from someone is, you know, I don't, I don't really like churches because of all the hypocrites, right? You've heard that one. To which I always want to say, well, come on and join us. You'll fit right in, you know, <laughs> along with me and all the others, right? I want to I invite them to come on in. Anytime you get people together, you're going to have some sort of difficulty. So on one hand, I, I kind of get where they're coming from. I think I understand a part of uh, what they're saying. But on the other hand, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the assembly of God's redeemed people. The, the church is also called the bride of Christ. And so when someone talks bad about the church, they're talking bad about the bride of Christ. And I, when I hear that, I think, okay, the church is the bride of Christ. If someone were talking like this, talking badly like this about my bride, what would I say? And what would I do? I see some men saying, oh, well, I know what I would do. <laughs> and, yet, and yet people talk bad about the bride of Christ all the time. And so I wonder... Uh, if we really think about how Christ feels about the church, how he thinks about the church. How does he think about her? What, what is his relationship with her? What, is, what does he do for his bride? Well, our passage today will uh, help us get uh, some answers to some of those questions. 
And in our passage, you notice the first word is husbands, right? And so this passage typically is preached that direction, and, and for good reason, because Paul is addressing relationships within the family, household relationships. Wives, this is my teaching to you. Husbands, this is my teaching to you. Children, etc., right? So he's talking about husbands. However, what I want to, to uh, focus on today is not necessarily husbands, but the, the teaching, the underlying truth that Paul pulls out and uses as an example to give to the husbands. Paul says, husbands, I want you to look at this illustration. I want you to look and think of this truth, and I want you to respond accordingly. Well, what I want to do is not really talk to husbands per se, though I'm happy to do that. But today I want to focus on that truth, that underlying truth and teaching that he is pointing to, that he's uh, trying to instruct husbands on how they ought to uh, treat their wives, etc. Let's look at the truth itself, and then we'll make application from it as well. So uh, we've been talking about the church this month, and today the topic of our, or the the, uh, title of our passage, our message is the church's splendor, beauty, radiance, wonder. The church is wonderful. So let's Let's look and see. So I'm going to uh, read these verses, and I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to focus on the husband aspects, but first of all, I want to notice that the, the church is loved and set apart. She is loved and she is set apart. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. He loved the church. And I think we miss that, and particularly those people who tend to badmouth you know, organized religion or churches in particular, or maybe a particular church or something like that. We need to keep in mind that, that when we allow that or when we participate in that, we're badmouthing something Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church. And he loved the church. He placed his affection upon the church. He's, that involves commitment. A special prioritizing, a, a paying attention to, a looking out for. He loved the church, and, and he loved the church to such a degree and in such a way that he gave himself for her. And this is, this is really a, a picture of what is love in a relationship versus some other kind of motive some other kind of underlying affection or, or, or something like that. Love is willing to give of himself, of itself, for the good of the other person. Right? You know the difference between love and lust, and there are probably a lot of differences, but one of them is that, uh, is that lust is out for what it can get. That's what it is. It's trying to get. It's not really concerned about the other person. Uh, and what the other person needs, what the other person wants, or whatever. It's more, uh, it's willing to use what the other person needs and use what the other person wants to get what it wants. But that's the driving factor. And love is different. Love looks out for the good of the other person. Even if it means at great sacrifice to oneself. And even if it's not received as love, by the way. Sometimes... Parents who love their children, and children can verify this. We've got some, some children who are uh, in here with us, and they can verify that the love from parents doesn't always look like love. right? If they had their choice, probably being disciplined wouldn't be at the top of their list. Well, the Bible tells us that, 
the, the, the father who loves his children disciplines his children. So it is an expression of love, though it may not seem like it to the child. And, and so here we have Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Those are not just two things. Oh, he loved her. That's A. And B, he gave himself. There's a close relationship between those. He loved her and thus gave himself for her. He was willing to give all that he had. He was willing to lay down his life and even die for his church. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. And so we have a cross up here to remind us of that. Even the baptism that we just saw is a reminder of that. It takes us back to Jesus' own death and his own burial and his own resurrection. And he did that out of love for the church. And so Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her and had a purpose in doing so. And that purpose was that he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. That he might set her apart for himself. That uh, the word sanctify is a church word. You don't really, you know, you're probably not going to read that uh, in the newspaper or something like that. But it, it just means to set apart, to set apart from something and to set apart for something. To set apart. And in this case, you've got a groom who is setting apart his bride for himself. Right? You grooms can relate. It's a, it's a natural thing. It's a, you know, that, that's my wife. I remember when Steph and I were first married and I got to say those words. My wife, right? Not my girlfriend, not my fiance, not she's going to be my wife or any of those other things that are all wonderful. That's my wife. She's set apart from me. She's mine, right? And the husband knows that and, and feels that. And, uh, and a wife does too. There's, there's this uh, something going on here where Jesus is setting her apart, setting apart the, the, the church for himself. He is sanctifying her like a, like a bride being sanctified, set apart for the groom. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He writes, To the church that, uh, of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Sanctified together. Called apart, set apart for Him, designated for Him as His. Where He looks and says, that's my wife. And so, He loved the church, He gave Himself for the church, that He might sanctify her. So the church finds herself in a place where she's loved and she's set apart. And secondly, we see that there's a, a cleansing that has happened. The church is cleansed, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So, so not only does He set her apart for Himself, designating her for Himself, but in a sense, He sets her apart from sin. She's... She's stained when she comes to the relationship. You and I, that's our sin. That's the, the, the sin that we were born into and that we have been saved out of if we are in Christ. And so that, that, that taint, that sin is done away. It's cleansed. It's washed from us. You know, I, 
I can imagine, okay, I, I can, you know, imagine in my brain a, a groom not showering on his wedding day. It's possible. And if, if that was you, don't raise your hand. And your wife's looking at you funny right now. Right? But even I showered on my wedding day. But I cannot, I cannot imagine a woman not bathing for her wedding. Can you imagine that? No way. I can't even imagine it. Not if there's water within a hundred miles. Not if there's a single baby wipe. Okay? She's going to bathe herself. Right? And so here you have the bride of Christ and he cleanses her. She, she, she comes to the, to the wedding, as it were, dirty, tainted. She, you and I come with our sin. And he cleanses us of that sin. He washes us. He cleanses his bride. And I love the means of cleansing here by the washing of water with the word. By the washing of water with the word. Now, if it didn't have those last three words, by the washing of water, we would think, oh, so baptism. So you need to be baptized so that you can be cleansed and therefore you can be a part of the church. The baptism, the water of the baptism is what cleanses you and makes the church clean, right? Woody likes to make a comment. I'm surprised he didn't make it this time. This is regular old Fallon tap water, right? It doesn't accomplish anything magical that I know of. It's just water. But it's just a picture, But he doesn't just say, by the washing of water, that would give us the idea that really it's baptism, it's that ritual, it's that thing that we do that somehow uh, uh, performs this result that we're cleansed. No, he says, by the washing of water with the Word. With the Word. It's as if we're being washed with water. We're being washed like that when you, you know, are teaching a child how to wash their hands. They got to get their hands under the water, right? And then you've got to keep them from splashing it all over the room and whatnot. But you've got to get them to get their hands under the water, right? There's got to, uh, and so it's a picture. This washing is pictured like water, cleansing, like with water. But that's just the image. What's effective, what causes the cleansing is the Word. It's the Word. And there's something uh, particular about uh, this word, this Greek word that's used for word, it's different than we normally think of. It's, it's not the word that's most commonly used, but it is the word that Paul uses in Romans 10 when he says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This, this Greek word that is translated here as word tends to carry with it the idea of the proclaimed word, specifically the proclaimed gospel. The preached gospel is how Jesus cleanses his bride for himself, is through the word, through the gospel. So it's, it seems to be more specific than just, you know, we, we did a, a Bible study today in our Sunday school class, and apparently I'd had too much coffee because I went really fast through this, but we were looking in Hosea, right? We're looking in Hosea. Well, it's not, it's not just, um, you know, we have the Bible open somewhere and thus he cleanses the church. There's a specific emphasis on the gospel. The proclaimed gospel is what he uses to cleanse his church. Now, you and I know, even from what I've just read here in Romans chapter 10, that, uh, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, that no one gets saved apart from the gospel, right? And that's, that's how he cleanses the church for himself, that proclaimed 
gospel that, that we respond to in faith, that we believe, and thus we become cleansed. But there's, there's more to it than that. I think, I think there's an ongoing element of the proclaimed gospel that further purifies and cleanses the church in an ongoing fashion. That you and I as Christians, yes, we, by definition, are Christians. We have entered into the Christian life. We did so through the door of the gospel. But it's not as if we left that door behind. It's not as if we, we no longer need to address that topic or as if the gospel itself has no further application for us. I think part of what he's getting at here is the ongoing proclamation of the gospel to you and me continues to remind genuine believers to look to Christ, to look away from ourselves and our failings or our successes, to look to Jesus and his success instead, so that my faith is in him, my trust is in him, my hope is in him, and... I have a continued desire all the more to look to Him. As He is lifted up, I love Him more. And I want to walk with Him more. And I want that to be seen in my life even more. And so the proclamation of the gospel as we talk about how God saves sinners through Jesus, as we learn about that, as we talk about that and study that together, our eyes are lifted up away from ourselves to Jesus. And that brings transformation for you and me. That brings transformation for the church and of course, this washing of water uh, with the Word, we, we, we can't get very far away from the water we just heard splashing. The baptism is such a beautiful picture of that happening, of what Jesus did. Not as water uh, washing dirt off the body somehow makes someone spiritually clean. It's this outward picture, as was said, of the inward reality of what Christ has done for us. That he took upon himself your sin and mine, Christian. And he was punished for that sin. All the way to death. And so he, he was even buried, going down into that water as it were. Buried under that water as it were. And he actually did die for your sin and mine, Christian. And God raised him from the dead thus declaring that that sin had been paid for, thus declaring that no, no taint of it remained on Jesus or there was nothing wrong with, with, uh, uh, with the, the, the agreement that they had made or the payment that Jesus had made. It was fully acceptable to God. We know that because He raised Jesus from the dead. Had it not been acceptable, had Jesus been lying or had there been something lacking in the payment, God would have just not raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is an impossible or hypothetical reality, of course, uh, but we see by the fact that he raised him from the dead that it was acceptable to God. And Christian, you and I see our death and our burial and our resurrection when we see baptism. We see that we died with Jesus and we have been raised with Jesus. And that's ours, the things that he did, the, what he accomplished there and the benefits of that are ours by faith in Christ. By trusting in Him, by looking away from myself and my desire to clean up my life or my desire to make sure I uh, do the right thing or follow the right path or, or some other thing that I'm going to do, by looking away from myself and looking to what Christ had done and believing and trusting in Him that that was adequate. His payment was sufficient for me. And I have to have it. All of that is applied to my account. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, 
and you're thinking, well, I, I don't believe uh, perhaps that God is real. Or perhaps uh, you're thinking that there's some, uh, something you can do, that there's some giant scales, and as long as you're, you know, you've got it weighted the right way, if you do a little bit more good than bad, then you'll be okay. Or some other uh, thing is going to give you peace with God instead of enmity, where you no longer have to answer uh, for your own sins. I'm here to tell you, and we're all here to tell you this morning, there is only one way, and that is Jesus himself. The, the penalty that you owe, you do indeed owe to the God who lives, and it is infinite. And if you could pay 99% of that penalty, you still have an infinite penalty remaining. Jesus paid it all. And so he cleanses his bride for himself. He, he washes her. He has her set apart. He's got her washed clean. And that, that cleansing happens by the gospel. And so we proclaim the gospel. We believe the gospel and we preach the gospel. And we see that he cleanses that bride, us, for himself. And thirdly, the church is presented to himself. And this is really the point. This is where we get to the heart of the matter. Verse 27, so that, anytime you see the word so that, you should underline it, circle it, something important follows. This is the purpose of why he did this stuff. What he's looking for, what he's really aiming at, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He set her apart for himself to present her to himself. No, no husband would be satisfied with having his, his bride you know, set apart for him. This is my, this is my fiance. We're, we're about to get married. And, and she took a shower today. She's, she's clean. She's beautiful. She's presentable. She's lovely and wonderful. And for that to be the end of it. Even to have the ceremony and be declared husband and wife. That, that's not the goal of the whole thing. That's a wonderful expression. It's a wonderful experience. But your desire is to be together. He presents her to himself. She's mine. She really is mine. Not just on the, the paper. Not just in name only. But she really is mine. And so he does all of this. He cleanses her and he sets her apart and he gives himself for her. To present the church to himself in splendor. He longs for that, that union. As every fiancé longs for that union. So this is his overarching goal. This is what he's seeking to accomplish. He wants to present the church to himself as his bride. And I want to notice that, that she is beautiful. There is splendor without wrinkle or spot. Now, wrinkles come with time. I'm, I'm aware of that. <laughs> wrinkles come with time. But this is the picture of a bride who is in full bloom of youth and beauty. And that's the bride he presents to himself. She's in splendor. She's unwrinkled. She's spot-free. And he calls her his holy bride. She has been set apart. She has been redeemed. She has been removed from the world in a sense that's no longer her identity. 
She's been cleansed. She's been set apart. She is unique for Him. For Him. She is holy. So let's pause here and think this is how Christ thinks of the church. We started at the beginning of our time, you know, with, uh, with complaints that, you know, you hear from people and all oh, the hypocrites there and the churches, you know, all those kind of complaints. And this is how Jesus thinks of the church. She's his. She's holy. He's prepared her. He's bought her. He's cleansed her. She's his. This is how he thinks of the church. And friends, I'm challenged that this is how we ought to think of the church. Instead of those other ways. You know, uh, kids, if you probably, if, if, if uh, you, probably your parents have a picture in the living room of their wedding day. Right? If I quizzed all the kids, they may or may not know it. That's the one where mom is dressed in that big dress, right? <laughs> Why is that picture hanging there? Kids are probably like, I don't know. Like, it's just another picture. For mom and dad, that's a special day. That is a special moment. That is a unique time where we think back on that and we remember why we got married, when we got married, that we got married, the things God has taken us through since we got married, all the kids we've had. That's a picture. It's a unique thing. It's a precious, precious thing. And this is how we see uh, Paul here talking about Jesus' relationship with the bride, with that kind of special care that he's got a picture on the wall in his living room. We see, finally, the church is nurtured. So it's not just all done and it's in the past, but there's an ongoing aspect to it that, that continues. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There's a lot of instruction there. No one ever hated his own flesh. But, again, we're talking about Christ's relationship with the church, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. I want to see, first of all, his tender nurture in an ongoing fashion. He nurtures the church. This is the same word that Paul uses over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. That kind of care, that kind of nurture, that kind of attention given. Caring for her own children. And so the question for us is, how does Jesus nurture the church? Well, you don't have to think too far, right? There's the cleansing that we looked at. There's the one-time cleansing and being set apart from sin when, when, uh, when we enter into Christ. But there's also the ongoing cleansing that He's at work in the church, purifying us. He's sanctifying us individually and corporately. He is sanctifying us. So there's a cleansing. There's provision. He provides for the church. Everything from salvation on through the rest of the life of the church, there's provision, there's protection. Because often the church comes up against enemies. And very often those enemies are just too great for the church. He protects her. The groom protects the bride. He also, another way he nurtures us, and this one's not as fun, but that's the pruning. There's a pruning aspect. Right? That's got to hurt. For the for the tree to be pruned and the and the, the you know the sucker limbs to be taken off and all the, all this the pruning that goes on to make a tree healthier to make a vine healthier he does that for the church and sometimes it hurts and you've got a wound 
And it's for your good. And it's for the good of the church. He prunes. He gives guidance. He gives guidance locally to a local church. As well as, historically, he gives guidance to the entirety of the church. All for these thousand, these 2,000 years. You can see if you read church history, if you read uh, theology, if you think of even a lot of the expressions that we come up with are the result of God's guidance of his church throughout history. The word Trinity, for example, you didn't read that in here. All right? That is God guiding the church into truth. That is God's work and, and provision and guiding of the church uh, over the course of history. And so, just as an aside, we, we dare not cast aside history. We dare not cast aside what the, the Christians before us have said. Not that everything they've said is true, but it's like not listening to your older brother. You know, you probably ought to listen to your older brother. He, he's not always on point, but he can sure help you dodge some difficulties. And this is what we heard about when Stephen preached earlier in the month from Matthew 16 that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is doing that. He has been doing that building his church. And so he gives all of these things for us. These are all his uh, examples of his tender nurture and his care for us. And there's another one, and that is his preserving his word for us. That he didn't just save, save us and then leave us without direction, without guidance, without instruction, without communication from him. He gave us his word and he has preserved it for us. And so we can look to it. We can study it. We can work hard at it. We can disagree with one another about what it means. We can, but we have his word right here preserved for us. This is a, an element of his tender care for us. Why does he care for us like that? Why does he give us such ongoing nurture? What's the reason for such care? Well, I propose that it's his one flesh union with the church. He says in verse 30, because we are members of his body. Because we are members of his body. What is the greatest gift we receive in salvation? If we were to do a quiz on that, I'm not sure what you might write down. What's the greatest gift we receive in salvation? Is it heaven? Is it, is it the hope of heaven? Is it the Spirit of God living within us? Is it having our sins forgiven? Right? These are all pretty high on the list. These are all wonderful gifts that are ours in Christ, that are ours in salvation. But I propose that probably the single greatest gift we receive in salvation is being united with the Son of God. That in itself, I think, pictures the rest of it. In that union, we receive His righteousness. We receive His inheritance. We receive His reward. We receive His care as we've read about here, his guarantee, his protection, and the greatest possible expression of his love for us by being united with Christ. And so he says here, Jesus does these things because we are members of his body. We have that close a union that now he cares for us as he cares for himself. Having given himself for us, he now cares for us as he cares for us. For himself. So we come to some application here. We see a great picture. This is a this is a a picture to contemplate, to go go home this afternoon and, and just work through, think through the way Christ relates to the church in this passage. It's beautiful. 
and he thinks she is beautiful. He treats her as special, as lovely, as, as, as worth giving himself for. He has set her apart for himself and joined himself to her. And so what's the application to us? Well, I can't get too far without making the application to the husbands because that's what Paul does here, right? His, his purpose in doing this, he's, he's in the midst of talking about husbands, how should you relate to your wives? Well, there's some challenging words here, husbands, right? Challenging words. I always enjoy preaching through this section. I've done it a couple times, and, and you get to, uh, you know, the, the paragraph above, wives submit to your husbands, and that's like, that's like the hardest thing, you know, right? And you get to the section about the husbands, and, and you know, the husband, what, what are you supposed to do for your wife? Yeah, die for her. You know, suddenly submission doesn't sound all that, all that difficult when you put it in the context, right? So there's application to husbands here. Husbands, this is how we are to love our wives. First of all, sacrificially. By laying down our lives and even our interests for the good of our wives. A good husband does that. A husband who loves his wife does that. Not every interest. He still gets to be a person and, you know, do his own thing. But he lays down his life and his interests for his wife. Secondly, by taking opportunities to remind her of the gospel and how it applies in her life. Remember the washing of water with the word? Husbands, that's your task. That's... That's, that's, you're on that end of the equation or the comparison here with Jesus. Reminder of the gospel. Reminder of what she has in Christ. What the Lord has done for her. Remind her of peace with God in Jesus. She knows it, if she's a Christian. But she forgets it just like you do. Practically, we go about our day and we forget about that. And I begin to trust in myself or I begin to look at myself or, or, or I begin to, I'm down in the dumps because of what I did. And I need to hear the reminder that, Brendan, you're a terrible Savior. So that I can lift my eyes off myself and look to the true Savior. Or I need to, I need to be reminded that, Brendan, you, you may think you're all that, but you're not. You have Jesus, who is the perfect Savior. So we need to, husbands, Take opportunities to remind our wives of the gospel and how it applies in their lives. Thirdly, by pursuing her holiness. Pursuing her holiness. What can you do that would encourage her in her faith and help her be set apart for the Lord? Her holiness is not ultimately up to you, but you can persuade her one way. You can persuade her the other way. So encourage your wife in her holiness. And thirdly, or fourthly, by tenderly caring for her and cherishing her as your own body. Right? And a clear example of this, I can look around the room and see that most of us husbands have not missed too many meals. Right? Because we care for ourselves. I'm hungry, I feed myself. Right? Well, that's an illustration for how we care for our wives. That we give her what she needs. As much as we can. And we're humans and we're fallible and all that, but, but the Lord has put us in that position Let's give of ourselves for her good. So the application to husbands, I think, is clear. There's application to wives here. All right? Prepare yourselves. Recognize that you need to respond to your husband's leadership in these ways. He's, he's, he's seeking to die to himself. He's seeking to pour himself out for you. He's seeking to direct you to Christ. And it's a beautiful thing when you respond to that. Well, there's another aspect of application here, though. And this is, this is more what, what uh, we've been talking about this morning. 
we need to recognize the level of Jesus' investment in his church. We talked in the beginning about the problems that people have with the church and the uh, suspicion of organized religion and all those sorts of things, but we need to recognize and see Jesus' treatment towards, behavior towards, care for the church, how he views her. She is beautiful in his eyes. He gave himself for her in his gospel work on her behalf. He gave up his own life for her. He endured all the pain and the suffering. He, he suffered in his life on this earth, living in a sinful world, enduring all that he did, living around sinners, having a sinner for a mom and a dad, brothers and sisters, all of his friends, his rabbi. Everybody around him was, was a sinner. And he endured that. He suffered that. And he suffered on the cross. And paying that penalty for you. And yet, all the while, he was obedient. He was fully obeying God's law. He was honoring Him the whole way through. Even when He was being derided, even when He was being stripped and beaten, when He was being crucified, He was honoring to God. He was fulfilling the law and He does so on behalf of the church that we would have that forgiveness of sin, that we would have that righteousness credited to us. He's setting us apart for Himself. How He set her apart for Himself as a bride set apart for her groom. That's how he thinks about the church. Can you imagine a husband uh, allowing someone to speak ill of his wife on their wedding day? I can't. He's probably not, you know, a husband or groom is probably not geared up to fight at that moment, but he's probably not far from it either. And that's how Jesus thinks of the church. She's beautiful. She's set apart for him like a bride set apart for her groom. We need to recognize how he sent the word of the gospel to the church to cleanse her of her sin. He cared enough not only to do those things, but then send out the message of it to you and to me. Send out that saving message of the gospel to redeem us. All the way in Fallon, America, or wherever you got saved. He cares enough to send that preached word of the gospel. We need to recognize how he prepares her for himself by removing wrinkles and spots and blemishes. He makes her holy. He's at work in the church. Now, the church is not without blemish. You and I can see that because I'm here and I'm one of the blemishes. <laughs> I'm part of the blemish, right? There's, there's some of that still here. We can tell. And he is working to cleanse and to purify now, he has purified her entirely positionally before himself, but he didn't stop there as if it were some sort of fiction. He's going to pretend like she's, she's pure and clean. He has accomplished that by what he's done. He's paid the price. He's made her holy and pure, and he doesn't stop. Not only is her position one of righteousness and holiness and being set apart for God, but he works in the church, and he nurtures us. He cares for us. And he's, he's scrubbing away the spots and the wrinkles. There's a lot to scrub away, but he's doing it. He's at work accomplishing that. And we need to keep that in mind. He considers the church to be his own body, the one with whom he is united as closely as husband and wife. That's how he looks at the church. That's beautiful. And that's very different maybe than the image you had in mind coming into the room today. 
there's that close of a connection. He loves us in that way. He cares for us in that way as for his own body. Viewing us as united with him as a, as a wife to a husband. What a beautiful thing. And so, thinking through these, there may be some ways that we need to think differently about the church. We need to look a little bit differently at one another and think about the church corporately in the local setting or around the world and see that God is, has such investment in us. Jesus has done all of these things on behalf of the church, is continuing to do so because he loves her, set his love upon her, and wants to present her to himself. That's precious. That's special. The Lord Jesus loved the church enough that he gave his own life for her. He set her apart for himself as his own bride. By bringing the message of the gospel to her, he cleansed her of her sins, making her spotless and pure. He set her apart and purified her for that great wedding day when he presents her to himself, complete and pure and in glorious Beautiful, shining, radiant splendor. And even now, he cherishes and nourishes the church like a groom does his bride because she is his body. And you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, are members of that body and recipients of that tender care by our Savior. This is how Jesus thinks about the bride. This is how Jesus thinks of us, the church. Praise God that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, being by nature children of wrath, praise God that we, such people, have now received these eternal spiritual blessings of union with Christ as His very own bride. What a glorious thing. What a... What an affection, what a commitment, what, a, what an investment Jesus has made in us, the church. And so I, I don't want to be one of those who, who uh, is suspicious of organized religion or I, I'm, I'm suspicious of churches or I complain that there are you know, hypocrites in the church or any of those things that, that you hear when you ask people questions. No, the, the church isn't a perfect place. We, we know that because we're here together and we, we're not perfect. But Christ is at work in us. We are his bride. He has joined us together with him. And what a glorious, wonderful place to be. And so I praise God that he's included me in this. I praise God that he's included us in this. The saving work of Christ on our behalf is a wonderful and a beautiful thing. And I, I just love how Paul has pictured that here for us today. I think often we blow by it because we're thinking husbands. What's a husband supposed to do? This and this. And this picture of what Christ has done is glorious. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, finish up our time in your word this morning, we are humbled. We are humbled that we have been called the body and bride of Christ, His bride. We recognize our own failing. We remember very clearly where 
we have come from and we recognize in our own daily lives the persistence of sin and, and struggle that we have and internally and, and sometimes with one another. And we recognize that, that we, we're an imperfect people. We don't deserve to be united with Christ. And yet, He loved us. And He gave Himself for us. He set us apart for Himself. He cleansed us, made us His own in order to present us to Himself in splendor and beauty and glory. And He continues to nurture people like us. Father, we come to the end of this time and we recognize our own unworthiness and we recognize the the grace of God in Christ. And we give you great praise and thanks. Father, I pray that you would help us to think in these terms. I pray that you would help us to think about one another in these terms. That we would see opportunity to show that kind of love for one another. That kind of care for one another. That kind of preference for one another. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts by this word, by your spirit, even this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front to pray with you if you want to do so. And I want to close us with these words from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all. And you're dismissed.